It's really wonderful to be with you this evening. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. And uh, we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews for, I think, the last nine weeks. This is our tenth and final week in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's quite exciting to come to the end of a series like this. It's been really wonderful to be in this wonderful book. And uh, we've learned a lot, I hope, and I trust. And uh, one of the key themes, hopefully you picked this up. If you picked up nothing else from the book of Hebrews, hopefully you recognize that the heart of the book of Hebrews is a call to perseverance. It's a call to endure through our hardships. How it highlighted that last week, but I want to just show you through the book how the author keeps hammering this home. In Hebrews chapter 2, he says, I want you to pay careful attention so that you don't drift away from the faith. In chapter 3, he says, you are going to be God's family, God's household, if you hold firmly to your confidence all the way to the end. In chapter 4, he says to us, make every effort to enter into God's rest and make sure that no one falls short or perishes, because you need to get to the end. In Hebrews chapter 6, he says, each of you needs to show the same diligence that Jesus showed right to the very end. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then as we saw from Howard last week, he says in chapter 12 that we need to run the race that is marked out for us with perseverance. But for me, I think the call that best summarizes the heart of Hebrews, if you, could, if you could ask me, I'd say this is the theme verse of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, chapter th- verse 3. He says this, I want you to consider Jesus so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Because the whole of the book of Hebrews has been about lifting up Jesus. It's been about elevating Jesus and exalting him as greater than any other revelation, as greater than any of the angels, as greater than any of the priests that have come before, and as a greater mediator of a greater covenant. And he has encouraged his audience to dwell on the greatness of Jesus and to look at him and to fix our eyes on him so that in the light of his greatness, they would have the strength and the grace to persevere and to endure the suffering and the persecution that they were under. That's the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. And so in this final chapter, in chapter 13 of Hebrews, our author takes the greatness of Jesus that he's been building up all through the book, and he now begins to apply it to all different areas of life. He says, because you know how great Jesus is, therefore I want you to live in this way. And what you'll notice as we go into this chapter, you'll notice that the long flowing arguments that you might have got used to in the book of Hebrews, sometimes taking one, two, or two and a half chapters to make one point, they're noticeably absent in chapter 13. There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of short, sharp statements that he applies this idea of the greatness of Jesus into many different areas. It's like having a buckshot loaded with Jesus that you just shoot out over the canvas of life, right, in a very rough metaphor. So we're going to read through it together, and I've called my message this evening, 10 Words of Wisdom to Live By, because there's 10 areas that the author applies the greatness of Jesus to. And so we're going to jump into them. If you can do some basic maths, you'll realize that if we're going to talk about 10 things, if I take three minutes on each thing, we're going to be here for 30 minutes, and if I take four minutes, we're going to be here for 40 minutes. So I'm going to try and land somewhere between the two, right, and we'll see how we go. Let's jump right in from verse 1 says this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 
Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Right? Here's his first command. I want you to continue to love one another. Continue to love one another. You might remember Jesus in multiple places in the gospel. He sums up the whole of the Old Testament law and the prophets in, this, in these two ways. He says, all of the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament can be summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that. Well, much of the book of Hebrews is dedicated to elevating Jesus. We've spoken about that. And for the Christian, that evokes out of us a response of worship and a response of love. It's easy to see in light of the greatness of Jesus, the, sac the, the worship and the love that we need to offer to him. The couch behind some of those wonderful articulations of the greatness of Jesus is another encouragement to remind us to love one another. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, he reminds us to encourage one another daily so that our hearts don't get hardened by sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says, guys, I want you to not neglect meeting together, which some people are doing. Instead, I want you to encourage one another and to love one another. And so at the beginning of his application in chapter 13, he starts with this call that we are to love others. The Apostle John says a similar thing in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And then he just he makes it a little bit a little bit more intense. He says, For whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, in other words, you can see the people around you. And if you are unable to love them, he says, then you cannot love God because you haven't even seen God. If you can't love your brothers or sisters, you actually don't have love for God. The love that you have for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength must get worked out in your love for one another. That's what it means to be Christian. You can't be any other way. You can't love God and not love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Friends, this means that when you disagree with someone, even when someone frustrates you, even when someone opposes significantly something that you stand for, even when we have an SGM that makes a decision on, a, on an issue that polarizes our church, we love one another. We honor one another. We recognize that God has made all of the people in this church in His image and in His likeness, that He is at work in their lives, that He has a plan for them. We are not so proud to assume that because they differ with us on a theological issue that we're unable to love them. says, don't hate one another, rather love one another as brothers and sisters. See them through his eyes. See them through God's eyes. It's our call. The second part of this command, the author, he takes this moment and he reflects back to Genesis. Or he reflects back to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham entertained three men. Abraham was hanging out at his tent. Three guys rocked up, and uh, Abraham saw them, and he thought, I must offer them some food. So he goes off and he slaughters a lamb and he brings it in and he cooks it up and they have a meal together. What Abraham doesn't know is that three of those three men, two of them were angels and one of them is what we call a theophany. It was a manifestation of God himself that came to visit Abraham. And the author points to the story in this moment as he's talking about loving one another and I think he does that for two reasons. 
Firstly, he does it to tell us that love is not just something you feel. It's not just something that's here in your heart. It's something that is worked out in a very practical way. We just had the opportunity in Musenberg to honor one of our leadership team members. And the thing that she was known for was the way she showed hospitality. In fact, she was leaving to go to Franchuk, and she came up to say goodbye. She said to the whole church, guys, I've got two rooms in my house. There are beds in them. Anytime you want, you come and stay with me in Franchuk. Right? Her heart was just full of hospitality, and hospitality was an expression of the love that she had for God's people. He uses hospitality here to show us that love is something that is practically worked out. But secondly, I think he uses it to, to highlight the significance of, how, of what it means to show love to one another. See, if you knew the person coming to visit you was God, how would you treat them? Right? You'd go out of your way to make sure that you honored and loved them. And the author says, you know, you might be meeting people and you might be showing their love or you might be ignoring them and you don't know who that person is. Jesus says in Matthew 25, you remember the story of the sheep and the goats? And Jesus separates people into two groups. And he says to some of them, get away from me, I never knew you. And they were like, Lord, when, when did we... Um, see you and, and not clothe you? When do we see you hungry and not feed you? And he said to them, inasmuch as you have done this for the least of these, you've done it to me. As much as you showed hospitality to the least of these, you did it to me. And when you didn't show hospitality to them, you didn't do it to me. He uses this picture to show us that if you would do it for God, you must do it for one another. Love has got to be worked out in the body. It's his first instruction. Love one another. Continue to love one another. Let's carry on. Continue to remember those in prison as if, they were, as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Here's the second command. Remember those who are absent and those who are persecuted. So you remember the original re recipients of this letter, they received this letter in the midst of significant persecution. We read in Hebrews chapter 10 where the author says, Remember those early days after you had received the light, after you had become Christians and received Jesus, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. That was how their church started. Right? It wasn't an easy start. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. See, members of their community had already suffered significant levels of persecution. They had been arrested and remanded to prison, and they were no longer there with them. Right, and we remember it was this persecution and their response to it that occasioned the writing of this letter in the first place. But his application to us is this. Just because things are going well in our lives, don't forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the Lord. Don't let that adage that says, out of sight, out of mind, be true for your brothers and sisters who are suffering for the gospel somewhere. It's again reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, where he honored those who visited those who were in prison. But our author, his application is more specific here. He's talking about those who were a part of your company, those who were brothers and sisters with you in the Lord and have now been taken away. And it's a little bit more probing as well, because Jesus said you just needed to go and visit them but our author here, he wants you to be more deeply affected. He says, I want you to think of yourself as though you were together with them or as though you were being mistreated alongside them. 
Remember them as if what's happening to them is actually happening to you. It's because when we suffer through something together, that shared suffering binds us together. Now, if I was in the 8 o'clock service, there might be some there who had served together in a major military conflict. And I think when you do that, you get something of an understanding of what it, like, it looks like to suffer with someone together. There's a, there's a series that's a bit old now called Band of Brothers. It's a story about a, a legion of men that paratrooped down into Germany in the Second World War. And as you watch that, you see the incredible suffering that they go through. But they were a band of brothers. They were united because of what they endured together. And our author is telling us that in our comfort, we need to place our hearts alongside those who are in that suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we need to remember them. We need to love them and to, where possible, to visit them. Do you remember to pray for them, to show our love to them, and to not allow their suffering to be forgotten? That's his second command. Thirdly, he says this honor marriage. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. I know, friends, for many this is, this is a nuance, it's a sensitive subject. Not all marriages in this room have endured and have started and ended as perfectly as you desire them to. And I don't have time to speak tonight into the complexities of marriage and all that goes with it. So I want to speak briefly into God's intention for marriage and to what our author communicates here for us to see. Right? And if you want to engage more meaningfully, you're more than welcome. I'm happy to chat with you afterwards. I'm happy to refer you to resources or to others. But let's have a look at this instruction because this instruction is not complicated. It's just really difficult. His instruction to us is rem to remember that marriage is a God-given union. It is something that is beautiful. It is something that has been ordained and blessed by God. It's something that is to be held in high esteem. It's not something that we undertake lightly. It's not something that we rush into, but something that we wait, that we wait on the Lord for, something that we consider carefully. Because when we marry, it's a union that God intends for us to last the entire duration of our joint lives together. That's God's intention for marriage. God's intention for Christians is when we marry, we marry for life. It's what He desires, and I know that doesn't always work out. And I'm not here to, to pronounce judgments on you. Right? Marriage in God's eyes, though, is not something that we enter into with an escape clause in mind, saying, you know, until death do us part, all things get really tough. That's not what God intends in marriage. Marriage is a union of two lives that we need to, to nurture, to feed. It's like a garden that needs to be tended. There needs to be hard work. Rocks need to be dug out. Fertilizer needs to be put in. Plants need to be pruned. It's got to endure. It's a union that God desires to endure hardships and to work through challenges. Which is why after his exhortation that marriage should be honored, he follows it with a warning. And if you remember much of the book of Hebrews, this is what he's done over and over in the book of Hebrews with respect to our salvation. And he says, I need you to know that you can't take your marital vow of fidelity lightly. Right? And for those of you who are not married, you're thinking, well, I'm not, not there yet. Well, he gets there. He says, you need to make sure you don't take sexual unfaithfulness lightly either. And he applies this to adultery, which is sex with another person's spouse. And then he applies it to sexual immorality, any sexual activity outside of marriage. 
Friends, that includes masturbation, if I can be frank for a moment. Allow me to say this. This warning is here because the author is so aware of the depth of the temptation that the enemy will seek to lure you into, that the enemy will seek to lure God's people and to lead them astray. And guys, I can tell you this from personal experience, and I can tell you this because I have journeyed with people, and I have seen this played out over and over and over again. So I want to I conclude this point with this encouragement. If you struggle with sexual temptation, whether you are married now or not, and by that, what I mean is not that you look at a girl or a guy as they walk down the street and you think, wow, that person's pretty. I'm talking about when you, those thoughts cultivate in your mind, when you watch a movie and afterwards you go and you Google the actor or the actress and you Google image search them. Right? Or you constantly are looking at someone's Facebook pictures because they're really, really pretty and you're just focusing on it. Or you know that you're turning to pornography and you know it's there and, and you know it shouldn't be happening. Or you know you're considering that friend and you're in a relationship but you're looking at them and you know in your heart that the relationship that's in your mind is inappropriate. As if you're struggling with sexual temptation, you need to take action now. You need to take action now. And here's what you're thinking, and I know you're thinking this because I thought it for years. Look, I'll just, thanks Brad, that, that's a really great reminder. I'm going to do my very best to work on it. It's a lie from the enemy. In your heads right now, it's a lie from the enemy. The enemy's number one weapon is silence and shame. Right now, he knows you're feeling ashamed because he knows what you're carrying. And he wants you to not tell anyone about it and to think that you can go away into a little corner and say a little prayer with God and it's all going to be okay. And I need to tell you that that's not going to work. You need to bring sin into the light. You need to tell someone. James tells us to confess our sins to one another. Do you know why? Because when we bring sin into the light, then the light of Christ is able to break the power of sin. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, but you've got to bring it out. If you don't bring it out, he's going to keep on holding you in chains. And so if you are struggling with sexual temptation, whether you are married or single right now, I want to encourage you now, today, tonight, take action. Go and talk to someone. And I'm not going to have a call at the end of the message where you all stand up and come forward. I understand this is a sensitive issue. You need to know there was a time in my life where I went to John and to Jason, and I said, guys, there's something I need to tell you because I'm struggling with this thing, and it is killing me inside. Don't miss the moment. Don't listen to the lie. Go and tell someone, and we're going to bring this thing out, and we're going to break it. Honor marriage. Fourthly, learn godly contentments. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Guys, if sexual temptation is the first major temptation that we face, the love of money is number two. And to be very honest, the margin between them is so small, I don't know if I can call it. Right? This is a massive temptation in the world we live in today. And so our author gives us a three-part encouragement. He says, I want you to keep your lives free from the love of money and learn to be content with what you have. Here's my translation. You don't need everything that you think you do. You just don't. It's a lie. Right? 
You don't need to own everything that your friends own. Do they have a new cell phone? You, you don't have to have a new cell phone, right? Do they have a, a new, like, some new clothes? Do they have a new piece of sporting equipment, right? You don't have to have it. Did they buy a new board game? You don't have to buy it. You can use theirs. <laughs> it's the beautiful thing about board games. You can share them for all the nerds in the audience, right? Do you know I still have a shirt that I was given on my 21st birthday? It still works. I mean, I could stand to lose a bit of weight and it would look a bit better. <laughs> but it still works. You don't actually need it. The love of money is the lie that has been created by the devil that you need to have new stuff. That you need to buy new things and have new experiences because if you have new things and new experiences, you will be happy. It's a lie from the enemy. And it is a lie that is sustained by a scheme that he has set in place that is worldwide and generations deep. It is created by the devil and it is sustained by the advertising industry. And all they do, day in and day out, is to create anxiety in you because you don't have the thing or you haven't had the experience and to tell you that your life will be better if you buy it or have it. And if there are those of you who work in the advertising industry, I'm sorry to say that. My best friend worked in the advertising industry, but it's true. That's what advertising does. It convinces you that the thing you don't need, you actually do. It's a lie of the enemy. Our author says you're able to resist the love of money because of the promise of God. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he says, I will be with you even until the very end of the age. If God is with us, who can stand against us? If God is for us, who's going to resist us? If God is behind us, we can withstand whatever the world throws us because the King of heaven is here. And he says, I am your brother, the man who created the heavens and the earth, who imagined the sun and spoke it into being. He is with us. You have in Jesus more than your money could ever buy for you. I promise you that. Which is why he says we can have confidence to proclaim that God is our helper. We don't need to be afraid. Remember, this promise is given to a group of people who are getting their stuff stolen. Not because they live in a particularly bad crime-riddled area, but because the state has come and begun to confiscate their stuff because they're Christians. And he says to them, I don't want you to long after the things that have been lost the things that have been stolen. I don't want you to break yourself to replace them because you need to recognize they're just things. And if you need them, God will give you what you need. You've got everything you need in Him. Turn to Him. Trust Him. Ask Him for what you actually need and He will supply everything that you need. Learn godly contentment. Number five, imitate your leaders and learn from them. All right? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now these leaders that he's speaking about, they were probably the leaders that planted the church in the beginning. They've probably moved on and his call to them. He says, I want you to, to look at their lives. I want you to recognize what they did and how they lived. And I want you to learn from them. I want you to imitate them. Essentially, he's reminding us that most of our life, we are developed by what we catch rather than what we're taught. I can stand up here for hours on end and tell you what the Scripture says, but if you spend hours living with me, 
You're going to see how I live my life, and it's going to shape you more than if you listen to hours of my teaching. Look at your leaders. Look how they live their lives. Learn from them. Imitate them. And I think his reference to Jesus has a twofold purpose in this moment. Firstly, it, it points and shows his audience that the leaders that they had were godly leaders and they had modeled their lives on Jesus. And if you're confused about what your life should look like, you look at Jesus. All right, but then he uses it to introduce the warning that's going to come because it stands against the strange and unusual teachings that some people were promoting that we're going to see in the next section. For us, this instruction, I think, has a twofold application. There are leaders in your lives, and you are to learn from them and do your best to, to imitate them as they do their best to imitate and to model Christ. And I want to ask you this question. Who are the leaders that are in your life? Are, are they there? Can you name them? And I want to say to you, a, a little while ago, I looked around and I felt really alone in the space that I was in the leadership that I had and I didn't feel like I had people around me. And it was then as I looked around that God said, Brad, you're surrounded by leaders and yet you're alone. You need to actively choose to let your leaders in. You need to choose to do that. We are here and we want to be involved in your life. But you need to invite us in. Are you spending time with the leaders who are around you? If you're not, go and take some initiative. Go and speak to someone. Say, hey, I'd love to spend time with you. If I can speak as a leader, there is nothing I value more than spending time with someone who wants to spend time with me. It's the greatest blessing for us as leaders. Secondly, here's the second application. Who are you leading? When Jesus designed and built his church, he didn't pick 12 men that would lead the entire church. They just started it. And they made disciples. And those disciples learned and gleaned from them. And then they went and made disciples. And those disciples leaned and learned from them, gleaned from them. And they went and made disciples. Who are you leading? Who are the people that are able to look into your life and learn from you as you learn from Jesus? And as you learn from the leaders above you? And if there's no one there, take a moment and say, God, who have you put around me? Who are the people that... I actually naturally have influence over, who look up to me. How can I actively look to be imparting what you've given to me to them? That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. That's five. Imitate and learn from your leaders. Number six, ground your faith well. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do. When he uses ceremonial foods here, he's talking about the Jewish system and way of understanding life. Right? Remember, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the verse that precedes it. And so his implication is, so do not be carried away by all weird kinds of teachings. Instead, look to Jesus. Friends, I don't think a more appropriate warning could have been written to this generation. See, 50 years ago, if you had something to say, you had to publish a book or get it published in a journal. And that placed a certain barrier to entry on the amount of information that was accessible to people and the people that wanted to be authors. Today, we have the internet. And it is the place that good Christian theology often goes to die. Now, there is some good stuff on the internet too, I promise. 
right? The Bible Project being one of them. If you haven't remembered that from the last time, right? But now, in order to influence people, you no longer need to be educated. You no longer need to understand the whole idea and be able to speak into the nuanced detail of it. You don't even need your ideas to be peer-reviewed or critiqued. You just need an internet connection and a working understanding of WordPress. And you can tell the world what you believe. So friends, I want to encourage you to be careful about what you choose to believe. I want you to study the Scriptures long and hard for yourself before you choose to believe something. Don't just take what I'm saying. Go and check it out in the Scriptures for yourself. Know what is happening in a particular book of Scripture as a whole. Know the story of the book of Ephesians or the book of Hebrews. Understand what's going on in it. Understand what's happening in the particular chapter that you're reading, the one before it and the one after it. Understand the progression of thought that the author is going through. And guys, I, I, I'm really happy if you want to subscribe to a verse of the day service. That's really wonderful. But if you do, go and dig up the verse in the Scripture itself and read the whole thing. Don't just read the one verse because you can't find the truth of the verse without its context. Now, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet. Some of it's good, a lot of it's bad. I want to share with you some of my rules of thumb for engaging someone else's teaching. All right, this is just me. This is not from the Lord. This is just Brad. Okay? When you find someone else's teaching, look at where you found it. Is it on someone's personal blog? Is it on YouTube? Is it on a journal site? Is it on an organization's website? That's going to help you understand where it's coming from, and it's going to help you ask the second question, who is behind this teaching that I'm receiving? Right? What is the author's internal bias? Because everyone has a bias. I have a bias. John has a bias. Alke has a bias. We all have a bias that we carry. Where do they come from? Do they come from a cult background? Are they Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists? Right? Those are a little bit obvious. Do they or the organization that, they, that you're looking at exist for a specific purpose? In other words, if you're reading an article on uh, the biblical grounds for um, gen non-binary gender norms, right? does it come from an organization that exists to promote the inclusion of non-binary gender identities? Right? Understand the bias that's coming behind what you're reading or watching. Understand some of the theology that exists in the organization or the person that you're reading from. Are they cessationists? In other words, they're not interested in the gifts of the Spirit. Or are they charismatic and that's something that they do believe? Try and understand a little bit of what they believe so that you know what they're going to share with you. Do they teach from the Greek or the Hebrew? Right, now, this is a little bit of a controversial one, but I want to share it for you for a particular reason. We need to understand our own knowledge cap. We need to know our own limits. Because if, if I had to stand up right now and I had to tell you guys, this is what, actually, you see this verse here, this is what it says in the Greek. 99% of you have no way of interrogating what I've just told you. Because you don't speak ancient Greek. You're not fluent in ancient Greek. And so you're stuck. Because the expert has told you this is what the Greek says. Sometimes people will do that and it will be good. But often if someone is going to promote an unorthodox or a different reading of the Word of God, a tool that they will use is to tell you this is what the Greek says. Right? And then you can't interrogate it. So just be aware of that. Be aware that you're, you have a knowledge cap and there are places that you can't interrogate. Simple one. Are they backing up what they're saying with Scripture? If they're not, you don't have a problem. You can just turf it. 
Right? If they do, go and read the verses for yourself. Don't just assume they've used them correctly. How does this verse, what does it read like in its context? Has the author inferred something into the verse that's not there? Can you see what they're seeing in it? Go and read it in its context. Here's a big one. I love this one. Go and read an opposing viewpoint. Proverbs 18.17 says it's my favorite proverb. The one who states his case first seems right until the second person comes up and examines him. People are very persuasive. There's a thing called framing where I can share just enough about something that makes it look very persuasive from my particular point of view. And then someone else who comes up who understands the bigger picture that you don't is able to interrogate the picture that the first person shared in a way that you can't. Go and read an opposing point of view. It'll allow you to interrogate what, you be, what you're receiving much better. Ask other people for their insight. Bounce ideas off your friends, off the people around you, off people that you think might think differently. Ask them how they respond to this particular teaching. And then ask your leaders for their insights. Right, we love to do this, but what we don't love is to receive an hour-long YouTube clip with a little tag, so what do you think? <laughs> That's a really long thing. When four of you send me that in a week, I don't have four hours to invest in your YouTube clips. Right? Tell me the point at which you want me to interrogate the teaching. Give me a specific question. I'd love to engage that. Ask your leaders. Sit down and say, hey, Rawls, hey, Brad, what do you think about this idea? I was watching this. I heard this. We'd love to do that with you. Okay. Enough about that, grounding your faith well. We're going to go from here, and our author is now, he's going to, he's going to tell a bit of a theological story. He's going to go on, going to, going to a bit of an expositional excursion. But that's not important, right? What he's going to do is he's going to set up a contrast between where Jesus died on the hill outside Jerusalem at Golgotha and the sin offering that happened in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement that happened outside the camp in the Israelites. You can read it for yourself in Leviticus 16. And then he's going to apply that into a particular idea. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to go into the idea that he applies it in. He says, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Here's his point. Go and find Jesus outside. Now, that, now you're like, Brad, what on earth does that mean? Right, we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to do it a little bit quickly. In their context, they were a group of Christians that had come from a Jewish background. I believe what the author is saying to them is, you need to cut ties with that background, because that background was safe. Judaism was a protected religion. And they were looking to say, look, we can be Jews, we just recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And he's saying you need to step outside of that. You need to cut off those Jewish roots, and you need to embrace Jesus, because Jesus bore disgrace by being outside the city, by being rejected by the people of God. And in the same way, you need to identify with Jesus and be willing to submit yourself to the persecution and the disgrace that might come with that. For us, we don't live in a place where that's going to happen, but it's going to happen in our political climate. You need to be prepared to identify yourself with Jesus in a way that's not politically correct. You need to be prepared to take a stand for who Jesus is and what Jesus says, even if that's going to go against the norms of culture and society, even if people are going to ridicule you for it. You need to be prepared to bear that disgrace because that's the disgrace that Jesus bore. You need to be prepared 
Like, I need to be prepared to stand at a, at a church pulpit and say that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sin, even if that lands me in jail. That's where our country's going. It's what it means to go and find Jesus outside. Number eight, we need to give God genuine praise. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruits of lips that openly profess His name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I'm going to do this one very briefly. We're called to praise God and to honor Him with our voices. We do that when we sing. We do that when we speak. But he says the integrity of the praise that you offer with your voice is proved by the way in which you love and care for others. Does that make sense? If any of you have sat near me in worship, you'll know that I sing particularly loudly. Right? The author is saying, Brad, you can't trick God in your level of devotion by honoring Him loudly with praise that comes from your lips if you don't honor Him by the way in which you love others as well. Your love for others will, will prove the love that you have for God. Remember, those two things are linked. You can't love God and hate others. Right? And if you don't love others, you can't love God. So your praise and the integrity of your praise and the fullness of the worship of your life will allow you to praise God with integrity with your words. That's what he's saying. Number nine, obey and submit to your leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those you must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Remember verse 7. In verse 7, he said, I want you to remember your leaders and I want you to imitate them. And now he levels it up and he says, not only do I want you to remember and imitate, but I want you to obey and submit. Right? To obey means to listen, to yield to, to comply with. It carries this idea of trusting those that you are obeying. That's why the NIV calls, says to have confidence in your leaders. Because I trust you, I'm going to yield to you. In James chapter 3, he uses it about the bits that is put in the horse's mouth that causes the whole animal to obey. And if you know anything about riding a horse, the more confidence you have, the better the horse responds to you. Submit means to yield, to withdraw, to stand down. As if we can be frank for a moment, obedience and submission are emotionally difficult to offer to other people. Is that true? Would you agree with me? Right. It's hard enough doing that to God. It's hard enough when you're sitting here and God just speaks to you irrespective of the preacher or someone sharing a word and God just says, hey Brad, I'd like you to go and do X. And you're like, oh Lord, that's a little bit uncomfortable. I don't really know how I feel about that. It is so much harder to obey and to submit to other imperfect, flawed, and undeserving human beings. It is difficult, especially if those people are people that have hurt you in the past. It is a difficult...
He had a son, Jonathan. He was a good king for a while, and then he wasn't, right? King Saul, sorry, thank you. Saul, Jonathan, David was the other guy, right? (laughs) While Saul is king, Saul falls out of God's favor. And so Samuel goes along and anoints David and says, David, you're going to be king. But David is not king yet. Now, David and Jonathan are really good friends. What does Jonathan have to do? Does he stick with his mate Dave? I mean, like, Dave, my dad has lost it. He's lost the plot. I mean, Saul is crazy to try and kill David. He's got it into his head to kill a loyal servant. Now, what is Jonathan to do? Does he stick with his mates and fight against the king who's over him? He doesn't. He stays with his dad. And you know he dies for that. One day Saul, now he's totally lost the plot and he goes to consult a medium and the medium pulls out the spirit of Samuel and that's a whole other story in itself. But God says, because you have done this, Saul, I will judge you and you and your sons will die. And so in the next battle they go into, Saul and Jonathan are killed. And Jonathan, a good, godly man, a man who recognized who God was and lived his life in obedience to him and in submission to the authority God put over him, died because of the sins of that authority. But God honored him. God honored him. Because he lived humbly and in submission to the leaders that God has set over him. Why do we submit to leaders? Why do we do that? Because God has set them to be watchmen over our souls. They keep watch over us as those who must give an account. And this is a reference back to the book of Ezekiel. If any of you have read the book of Ezekiel, it's a very interesting book. And a lot of cool things happen in the book of Ezekiel, right? Amongst them, the call to use grapevines for brying, right? But that's a whole other story. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and, verse, and chapter 33, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, I am setting you as a watchman over the house of Israel. Here's what that means. When the enemy comes against Israel, you have a job. Your job is to go and tell the people about the enemy. And if you do and they listen to you, then they're going to be saved. And that's going to be great. And if you do and they don't listen to you, then they're going to die but it's going to be on them. But if you see the enemy and you don't tell them about it, then when they die, I'm going to come looking for you and I'm going to hold you accountable for all of their deaths. That's the role of a leader. They watch over your souls. They have responsibility for your life before the Lord. They have a responsibility to point out and to call out where the enemy is coming against you. That's a burden that they carry before the Lord, that we carry before the Lord. And friends, I need to tell you that burden is very often hard to bear. It's very often hard. It involves having conversations with people that I would genuinely rather not have. That we as leaders would really rather not have. They are painful conversations. It involves saying things that become hurtful because they dig beneath a veneer and they call for righteousness. It involves navigating complex decisions that affect the lives of multiple people where there is no simple answer and there's no way to land in a place where no one gets hurt. And yet someone's got to make the decision. It involves this constant heartache for the people that you're leading because you feel their hurt and their pain. You feel the animosity and the frustration. Friends, when we sat at the end of the AGM on Wednesday night, I left and my heart was heavy 
my heart hurts, not because of how the
triggers and go spend some time. You want to go encourage one another and love one another in the Connect Cafe. I want to encourage you to do that.